0: Oh, well, good morning! Oh man, I'll give you yeah. You were busy. Okay, that was a really lackluster greeting here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Much more better. Much more better. Um, ooh, uh, I. Uh, you know, it's good for me to be back. I've been gone this past week uh, for about eight days. Actually, I was down in California. It's good for me to be back. Let me say now on one hand, it was really nice. We had 86 degrees. I got a little sunburn on my head. So I'm sorry to say that. Okay. But now that you're a little irritated with me, let me give you the other side. I hate traffic. It was awful. I grew up in Southern California. I don't ever want to go back. I love Alaska. I love being here. I love being with you all. And I missed you as I was away, um, even though it was nice and warm. I cannot imagine planning my life around traffic. Um, Anyways, so it's good to be here. Uh, Before I get into the message this morning, a quick announcement. And actually, by the way, we're finishing up the book of Exodus this morning. We're going to do it. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that by the wahoo's, you mean this has been good and we're glad to. (laughs) Right. I'm just going to assume that there's goodwill intended there. I'm going to take it that way. But um, we're going to finish it up, five chapters, boom, we're going to bring it to conclusion. And then in two weeks, we're going to start uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, okay? And I'm looking forward to those, uh, but that's where we are. Uh, before we get into the message, a couple of announcements. You, you hopefully are very much aware of Bethel's third annual Christian Thought Forum. Uh, and uh, we have two excellent speakers coming to town. This begins this next this, this upcoming weekend here, beginning Friday and um two speakers one of them randy newman uh is really uh uh just kind of a guru on evangelism that's his heartbeat and he's a very sought-after speaker he's worked with campus crusade for christ for over 30 years uh he serves uh right now to professors uh, in our nation's capital and uh it's got a lot of work to do there i think and uh Uh, his heartbeat is to equip people to share their faith he's written three different books on evangelism questioning evangelism corner conversations and I think the third one is bringing evangelism home something like that and that last one is really along the lines of how do we share our faith with those people who are most difficult to share it with but for whom maybe we care the most and that's our family and so that's really what he's going to bring to this this particular forum so Um, that's one speaker. The other one, the other speaker is Alan Holtberg, and he is a professor at Talbot School of Theology, one of the foremost experts in the book of Revelation. And that's what he's going to be talking about. And, uh, in fact, there's a book series out, uh, by Zondervan called Counterpoints, uh, which kind of takes key issues of theology and says, okay, here's three views on salvation or four views on sanctification or whatever, and when Zondervan was looking for an editor for a book on the rapture, they, could, they, they grabbed Holtberg and said, Would you be the editor of this book, Three Views on the Rapture? And um, anyway, so he, we're going to have him. We're fortunate to have both of these guys. And I think it's really timely to be talking about the book of Revelation, especially. And here's why. Here's why. Not because I think the Lord is coming tomorrow. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But here's why it's important. Because people are afraid right now. People are living in fear. Do you sense this? And there's all kinds of reasons why. We can see things going on around us that could cause concerns. And they begin to, ask, they begin to get us to ask certain questions about um, when would the Lord might return. And people are beginning, and I think in a healthy way, to trust less and less things they have trusted, such as our government, such as financial resources. A lot of these things are being exposed for untrustworthy things. And so people are afraid, and they're asking questions. And I think it's very timely to be talking about the Lord's return in the book of Revelation. And obviously that's one of the reasons I've, I chose First and Second Thessalonians. So I hope you will take advantage of this uh, forum that's coming up this weekend. It starts Friday at 6.30. It's free, and I hope you'll bring as many people as will come with you. So uh, please invite your friends. Let's pray, and then we will, to your great joy, conclude the book of Exodus. So let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you are not distant and far removed and far away, mysterious and unknowable. Uh, You have revealed yourself to us in this world and in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ, and through your spirit. God, we can know you and you want us to know you. And uh, even though we won't, we'll never know you fully on this earth. um, You invite us into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. So I am thankful for that. I'm thankful for the book of Exodus, which really informs a lot of what we know about you. And uh, thank you for our study. God, bring us to a good conclusion. And Holy Spirit, please help us to listen and hear what we need to this morning. In Jesus name. Amen. How big is your view of God? How big is your view of God? How accurate is your knowledge of Him? How developed is your understanding of His nature and His character as He is? Uh, I have a quote here by E.W. Tozer. A little taste of Tozer this morning. He says this, and maybe one of his most well-known quotes The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Uh, this statement, I believe, is absolutely true in our day. It was true in Tozer's day, and I think it's much more true in our day. Uh, we typically have a very small view of God. Uh, we have, I think, in our culture, in our day and age, maybe such a low commitment to the word of God in studying and searching out to see who he is as he presents himself to be as maybe ever before in history. Amazing that we would have access to the word of God in greater ways now than ever in history And yet we maybe have the least understanding and knowledge of who he is now than ever in history. Uh, This morning, as I said, we're finishing up the book of Exodus, five chapters, 35 to 40. And oftentimes when we think of the Exodus, we think of God's taking Israel from place A to place B, right? It's about God taking Israel out of Egypt and taking them to the promised land. And that's certainly a part of it, but it's not the whole of it. There's a whole lot of other exodus a whole lot of other exits going on here in Israel's life we see yes there is an exit from bondage right they were in bondage to slavery bondage in and bondage in Egypt but there's also an exodus out of ignorance they didn't know Yahweh well they knew of him they knew enough to cry out to him in their distress but Joshua 24, verse 14 tells us that when they were across the river, when they were enslaved, when they were in Egypt, they worshipped other gods. By all indication, they fell into the polytheistic beliefs, belief system of Egypt of the day. They didn't yet know Yahweh well. So not only is there an exit from bondage, but there's an exit from their ignorance of not knowing Yahweh. There's an exit of their rebellion. They were a stiff-necked people with a rebellious heart, not inclined to bow themselves or their heart to the living God. And yet there was an exit from that kind of lifestyle as they walked with Yahweh out of Egypt. There was an exit out of idolatry. Remember, they fashioned a God in the image of a calf and worshipped this God, even after all that Yahweh had done for them. And so what we find here is throughout the book of Exodus, Yahweh has been leading his people out But not just out of a region. It has been an exit out of a lot of different things. Bondage, ignorance, rebellion, idolatry. And he is bringing them into engagement. Engagement with himself. Engagement with with the living God. And that's what Exodus is really about. And as each one of these exits are happening, something really pivotal is occurring in Israel's life. That is, they are coming to know Yahweh. They're learning about their God. Their theology is being formed along the way, not just in abstract ways, but in experiential ways as they see God work in their life. And as we follow Israel's Exodus, we learn that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And here's the big point for this morning's message, that he is a God who is worthy of worship Full blown, full heart, full life, full love, full sacrifice—kind of worship. That's the kind of God that we have. Let me give you a little bit of background, too, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Exodus. Two weeks ago, we were in Exodus 34, and we saw the grace of God at work, renewing His covenant with Israel. Remember this: they had been idolatrous; they formed the golden calf. What, what some people have likened to a honeymoon affair. God bringing them out of bondage, bringing them into beautiful covenant relationship with full promises being kept, taking them to be his own people. And Moses departs for them for 40 days and in this short amount of time they dive into what has been called a honeymoon affair and to engage in idolatry. But God was gracious to them and he renewed his covenant with Israel in spite of this. And then we learned along with Israel that repentance leads to forgiveness. Our God is a forgiving God. That is unique to Yahweh. I dare you. I challenge you to find any other God in the construct of man's design that is forgiving. It is unique to Yahweh that he forgives sins and not in just some. Flimsy sort of way, but in a substantive way, such that our sins would be poured into his pure son, Jesus Christ, killed and crucified and done away with. He forgives on that basis. And that's what Israel learned, this repentance, that repentance leads to forgiveness. And then we saw Moses made this bold request in Exodus 34. And I hesitate to say this because when I said these words first service. The lights and the power went out in here. I'm not kidding. I said these words. Brace yourselves. Moses made the bold request to see the glory of God. Boom. The lights went out. (laughs) It was a powerful first service. Yeah. Um, Incredible, bold request of Moses, right? Can you imagine making that claim after all that he's seen God do? After all they've experienced with Yahweh to make that claim, Lord, I want to see your glory. And yet God says, I'll give you what you can handle here. You can't see all of it because you would just implode. I'm paraphrasing. But you can see my backside. And as the Lord passes and shields him from his full glory and he gives him this statement as he's passing by, he says this. In verse 6, this is Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and he did the right thing. He worshipped. He worshipped. Um, I showed you last week, too, or a couple of weeks ago, rather, how these declarations of God, this self-disclosure, this revelation that he gives to Moses of himself, that these are not just abstract theological statements that he pulled out of thin air. But as he speaks about his attributes to Moses, these attributes would have absolutely resonated with Moses and Israel because they were the experiences that they had had with Yahweh. When it says the Lord, the Lord. We understand that God is giving his personal name. It's Yahweh, Yahweh. In other words, he is a personal God. When he says it twice, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, he is communicating that he is a God that does not change. The promises that he gave to Abraham, Abraham, he is keeping now in Israel, taking them out of this land. And as it goes on to say the compassionate and gracious God this would have resonated with Israel they would have remembered yes this compassionate god heard our cries and heard our prayers for help and he not only heard them but he acted he was moved by them his compassion caused him to act and to bring us out of the situation that we're in slow to anger and abounding slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness This would have resonated with Israel. They would have remembered that they were whiny along the way, right? Like a five-year-old in the back seat on a long road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I was saying that first service and a little kid in the front row goes, that's me. (laughs) And I said, brother, that's all of us. We're whiny and complaining. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They whined all about all kinds of things to the Lord. So when he said that I am slow to anger and abounding in not just love and faithfulness, the Hebrew word that is Hesed love, loyal love, covenant love, love that stays with, love that persists. And Israel would have said, Yeah, that's the God that we've experienced. That's how He is related to us along the way. And when it goes on to say, maintaining love to thousands, we look at that and go, what thousands? Isn't there like a million and a half Jewish refugees here? Did he just love a handful of them? A few thousand of them? It's literally thousands of generations. Generation after generation after generation after generation, such as the ongoing love of God. And that would have resonated with them, for they had been in bondage for 400 years. But God's love continued. His love to thousands, thousands of generations. And it goes on to say, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This isn't an abstraction. This is a specific reference. Israel would have said, yes, he forgave our wickedness, our rebellion, our sin. We worship the God of our own making. We as stiff-necked people rebelled against Yahweh. We turned our backs against him he was drawing us into an intimate relationship with himself extending a covenant to us and we in wickedness rebellion and sin delved into idolatry they would have this would have resonated with them yes he does forgive these things it goes on to say he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, I think their hands would have been on their heads and they would have remembered, yes, God is a holy God and a God of judgment. We don't like that about Him. Our culture is offended about that. But the reality is it's so. It is so. He is a holy and a righteous and a God of judgment. And they would have remembered their 3,000 brothers and sons and children that were killed that day because of their idolatry. They would have remembered that. So this statement is not just an abstract theological statement. It's a statement of God disclosing to Israel who he is. And they they would have said, yes, we understand this to be the God that we have walked with on our way out of Egypt. As we get to the end of chapter 34, we find God renewing his covenant with his people. Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai meets with God, and receives uh, the sort of the Ten Commandments and the law all over again. The first time God wrote it out, remember that? In his own hand. What did that look like? I know, I'm sorry to say the only image that pops into my mind is the elvish writing, you know, of Lord of the Rings or something magnificent like this that illuminated, I don't know. But this second time, Moses has to do the work. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is, I just wonder, but he did. Moses had to chip away and and rewrite the covenant here. And we're told that he met with God on the top of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. And when he came down, his face was radiant. Because he had encountered a living God. And it manifested himself in his countenance. And people could see that. Could see that. And so as we transition out of 34 and into 35 and the rest of the book. Uh, we have this whole new scene. a Whole new sense. A whole new feeling of things. It's a new day. It's a new day for Israel. There is new hope, a new beginning, so to speak. Israel gets a fresh start. This cloud of heaviness that was on them because of their sin and their idolatry and everything else is now lifted. And the expectation, and actually what we're going to see at the end and the culmination when the tabernacle is built, the cloud of heaviness taken away and a cloud of the glory of God comes and indwells the tabernacle and leads them from that point on. And so there's this very clear shift that's going on here and this, this change. And we see that maybe for the first time in the book of Exodus, Israel is now willing to arrange their life around God and to arrange their affairs around Yahweh. Now, you almost expect when you come to the end of the book for it to say something like, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and anybody who's followed the story of Israel knows better than that. But at least in this moment, at least in this moment, it's as good as it gets for Israel. Their hearts have been changed. And chapters 35 through 40 really are about, about the obedience of Israel to do just as the Lord had commanded. That phrase shows up more than 25 times in the next five chapters. So if you ask me, what are the next 25 chapters, or excuse me, next in the next five chapters about? Israel had learned to do just what the Lord had commanded. That's sort of the volume knob of this particular text. And so they built the tabernacle according to God's plans and for his purposes. And so what we have here really are five chapters of as built for those of you in the construction business or or whatever. Five chapters of as builts. And so rather than preaching through chapters of as built, I'm going to ask you to either take my word or don't take my word for it. They did it just as the Lord commanded. Study that out for yourself or believe me, whatever you want to see there. But the question I want to ask that I want to bring to the text this morning is this, is why? Why now? What changed Israel's heart such that now they're willing to arrange their life and their affairs around the commands of Yahweh? This stiff-necked, rebellious people now willing to obey. What changed? What changed in them? What happened? What occurred? And I believe that really what happened here was Israel has learned that they have a God who is worthy of worship. And the key fundamental shift that brought that to their mind was the forgiveness of God that they had received. They should have known earlier they saw God's power. They saw it displayed. They saw that they had been graciously been invited into relationship with him. They saw the commitment of God expressed in his covenant. But for whatever reason, they kept him off, stiff-armed, away, distant. And now when they have received generous forgiveness of God by his grace, something changes in their heart. And I believe that to be the operative action here that caused them to begin to change their life and their heart around Yahweh. They had seen the grace of God expressed through forgiveness. And I believe that's what changed their heart. Jesus himself said in the New Testament, He who has been forgiven much what? Loves much. He has been forgiven much loves much. And I think Israel had been confronted with the amount of forgiveness they had received. I believe it was the grace of God expressed through forgiveness that compelled them to worship. And so what we're going to do this morning, and this uh, you're going to be writing feverishly for those of you who like to take notes. We're just going to... Rapid fire, go through the book of Exodus and see the grace of God at work in Israel's life from beginning to end and see how it all culminates in the tabernacle. Okay, here we go. You ready? It was by the grace of God, first and foremost, that he chose Israel to be his covenant people. This promise made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant years before. Was Abraham a good guy? Was he so winsome, so compelling? Did he deserve it when this covenant was made to him? When the covenant was made to Abraham, he was an idolater. It was by God's grace that he even called them to be his covenant people. God's divine, self-choosing grace that he called Abraham. It was by the grace of God, secondly, that he chose Moses to lead them. When we think about who Moses was, we might be inclined to think after we've gone through the whole book of Exodus to think, yeah, Moses was a good guy, good leader. But consider who he was when he was called. By the grace of God, he had been spared a death that he would have expected to have had as an infant because of what was happening in Egypt. But God spared his life and brought him into the home of Pharaoh and equipped and trained, and developed him there. And so we might be inclined to look at that and say, yeah, see, he was prepared, he was ready, he was qualified. It's because of his qualifications that God called him, and yet we also remember that Moses took those qualifications, and his first act of leadership was what? Murder. And his second act of leadership was retreat. He was an insecure man and an inarticulate man, and yet God would use him to pen the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It was by the grace of God that he chose Moses to lead them, a murderer, an insecure man, an inarticulate man. It was by the grace of God that he rescued Israel from bondage. As I've already stated in Joshua 24, we know that it's not that they were so good and so innocent in bondage, but in fact, they were idolaters themselves. They were worshiping other gods. They called out to Yahweh, but I wonder how many other gods they called out to. But Yahweh answered. It was by the grace of God that he demonstrated his power, not just to Israel, but to all of Egypt, in the way that he removed them from Pharaoh's grasp. Do you remember this? Ten plagues that came upon Egypt, one at a time. Each one specifically directed at a false deity of Egypt. One at a time, God is prying Pharaoh's fingers off of his people. And he did it in such a way that he systematically dismantled their polytheistic beliefs, showing himself to be the one true God. I love the words of Carl Laney when he says that what God could have done in an instant, he did by degrees to show his all-surpassing power. God, it was by the grace of God that Israel plundered Egypt. Remember this scene. They're leaving in haste, in hurry, to the point where their bread's not even finished yet. Right? They're taking food out that's in process of of being made. And God tells the women, go to your neighbors and just ask them for stuff. And they do. And God inclined the hearts of the Egyptians to enrich them. And so they walked out with lavish Um, garments and jewelry and ornate things. And so they plundered Egypt. They, They walk out in formation with all of these goods draped upon them as though they had fought a victorious battle and plundered their enemies. They had never had to lift a finger because God did it. It was by his grace that they plundered Egypt. And these gifts that he gave to them were to later be used for the building of the tabernacle. And yet they would misuse them at first. They would misuse them first. It was by the grace of God that he provided for their needs along the way. And he did so in such a way as to show his care for them and his concern for them as he provided manna. Right. as he provided quail and as he provided water, even to the point where they came first upon bitter water and they complained and they grumbled and they said things like, if only we were back in Egypt where we had pots of meat. Right. That one just cracks me up. Pots of meat, whatever that is. Um, But God provided for them. He provided for the daily needs. He did it for over 40 years. And he did it in miraculous ways to show his provision. Um, It was by the grace of God that he was patient with their testing. Remember their testing? The place that was renamed Massah and Meribah. The place where they accused Moses and they put Moses on trial in that place where they tested God. Why did he bring us here? Why did he do this to us? And yet God was patient with that. And it was by the grace of God that he extended a covenant relationship with them. I want you to think about this. Men, how many of you, if you were asked Go find yourself a bride. But I want you to find one who is prone to wander, whiny, grumbly, distrustful, unsupportive, disrespectful, annoying, self-consumed, talks a lot, listens little. And I want you to express your undying love to her. Any any takers? (laughs) This is what God did. As a husband said. I'm going to take you my bride Israel. With all of these things. And you're going to be mine. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. Gracious? By the grace of God. He extended that covenant relationship with them. And he gave Israel the law. Which they loved. We have a different take on it. We look at it in the new covenant. We look back at the law and go, man, I'm glad we're not under that. But Israel loved it leading into it because it told them about God and who he was and what he wanted and how to relate to him. They loved it. They meditated upon it. They wanted to do what it said. It taught them how to do relationship with Yahweh. It was instructive. They were learning to relate to this God and God gave them the Sabbath, which was like the wedding ring. A sign, a symbol of the covenant, right? As they kept the Sabbath, God's gift to former slaves, as they kept the Sabbath, a day of rest and a day of worship, it was like wearing their wedding ring. I'm his and he is mine. I'm betrothed to him. It was an expression of fidelity. And then God gave them the tabernacle. A place of worship, a way to worship, a way for a sinful people who were becoming more and more aware of their sin to approach a holy God. Good gifts for a covenant marriage, for this covenant relationship. It was by the grace of God that he forgave their idolatry. And I have an asterisk next to this because I believe this is the pivotal point in the life of Israel. When they had come to this point. All of this love being expressed to them by Yahweh. All of this commitment. All of this affection. All of this faithfulness. And they go off. And jump into a honeymoon affair. And they jeopardize the whole thing. And God comes back and says. I forgive you. I believe it changed their hearts. I believe they learned of the grace of God that they had not yet known. It was by the grace of God that he gave Moses a glimpse of his glorious nature and we've already worked worked through that. It was by the grace of God that he then renewed his covenant with Israel. Friends don't ever let anybody tell you that the Old Testament is missing the grace of God. Have you heard this before? The New Testament is it's great. We love it. It's this testament of God's grace. And the Old Testament seems to be a testament of wrath, anger, or something else. The Bible, from beginning to end, is full and saturated with the overwhelming grace of God. The grace of God is this scarlet thread that runs through every page of Scripture and through every day. Of our lives, every day of history, beginning with the creation of the world, which is a gracious act, was not compelled to do it. The inauguration of God's redemptive program after Adam and Eve's sin, after their rebellion. The threat of grace continues on into uh, the first coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The grace of God culminates in his second coming when he returns for his bride, us, the church who even though we can see all of this grace poured out from beginning to end, are still unfaithful. The grace of God saturates and permeates every aspect of the Holy Scriptures. And it is that grace, particularly expressed in forgiveness, that I believe compels Israel to worship them, to worship him like they had not yet done. And that's what we're going to look at real quick. Four takeaways from these last five chapters. I promise you it'll be fairly quick. The grace of God taught them to worship him only. Look at chapter 35, verse 1, please. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And you might say, Eric, what in the world? Why why do we want to see that? Why do we want to hear that? What is gracious about that? When God extended the Sabbath to Israel, remember, it was there. It was like the wedding ring. It was saying, this is the sign. This is how you tell me that I'm yours. This is how you show me the faithful commitment, the fidelity and the love and the affection you have for me in keeping this. It's just a sign, but it's how you show me. And so this is just a repetition of the full explanation of the Sabbath that we got earlier. But he's just repeating this. He's bringing it back, retelling, renewing the commitment, renewing vows, as it were. It was to be a way that Israel could express to God, we love you, we worship you, we are your people. And so Israel is learning through the grace of God that they can worship him and him alone. And this was... How they did it. And friends, I want to confront you with this truth. You are all worshipers. And the reality is that you are absolutely worshiping something right now and throughout your life. You are worshiping. There's no neutral position. There is nobody that can say, I'm not a worshiper of anything. You are worshiping something. And the question that we are confronted with in this text, I believe, is what are you worshiping? Whom are you worshiping? In fact, if I could give you a homework assignment, I would say this afternoon, put on your jacket and go for a walk. And in prayer and by faith, ask the Lord one question. What am I worshiping? What has my heart? What am I drawn to? What am I pulled to? What am I concerned about? What am I worried about? What do I pray about? What do I stress about? That's more than one question, isn't it? What am I worshiping? Israel had more than dabbled in other objects of worship, but God's forgiveness compelled them to worship Him alone. Secondly, the grace of God taught them to give generously. Uh, some of you are flinching already because you're hearing the giving thing. I don't know if there's a sweeter passage of Scripture on giving in all of the Scriptures. Okay? Okay? You're going to enjoy this. Verse 4. Excuse me. Chapter 35, verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, remember, where did they get what they have? Had they worked so hard to get it? No, they plundered Egypt by walking out and doing what God had asked. God said, just ask. Okay. Can I have what you have? Sure. And they walked out enriched." All right, so let's just remember that. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. And let's just say the list goes on from there, okay? There's all kinds of of things from which gifts would be brought. Now skip down to chapter 35, verse 20. And we'll see Israel's reaction. Verse 20 Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. Offended? Do you think? Let's see. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. Now skip down with me to 36.2. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oheliab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work, they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings, morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough For doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order. And they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else. As an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were. Get this. Restrained. From bringing more. Because what they had already had. Was more than enough to do all the work. What a contrast to the offering. That was taken for the idol. Do you remember this? Aaron said, bring these things, not a free will, but a dogmatic, bring these things. And what we find is that they gave a portion of their own resources to fashion a God of their own making so that they could continue to continue to hedonistically pursue their own desires. That was offering number one. But in this offering, and in this passage, we see very clearly the willing heart of Israel, not just giving a little bit of stuff. To a little bitty God. For a little bit of worship. Instead they're now willing to give to the point of being restrained. The workers have to come out from doing the work. To say please stop. It's more than enough. These skilled workers are now turned into bouncers. Can you imagine? Imagine this. Offering lines in the church. Imagine imagine the church divided by velvet ropes out in the foyer. Zigzagging on its way out. With little, with little signs along the way that says, Your wait is now 30 minutes. <laughs> Do you know? Imagine if you could go to a little ticket taker and get a fast pass to get to the front of the line. Because you were so concerned to get there to... Take and receive and consume to give, to sacrifice, to lay up as an act of worship. Imagine the elders coming out and saying to the line of people queued up in the foyer, beyond the velvet ropes, beyond the ticket takers, and beyond the rest. Please, no more. We have more than enough. Such was the heart of Israel. At this point, something has changed in them, and I believe the radical factor for their change is the understanding, their understanding, their complete understanding of their forgiveness. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And by their idolatry, they had jeopardized the covenant of God, but by his grace and forgiveness, he renewed it. And he drew them into sweet fellowship and said, you may come and worship me. And they did. And so they had known of God's power before. They had seen it. But now they knew of his grace and his forgiveness. Machiavelli once asked the question, the philosophical question in his book, The Prince. Remember this? Is it better to be feared or loved? What a silly question. It's asked of someone who's not read the scriptures. It's better to be loved. And the grace of God made them be a generous people. His expressed love to them in grace and forgiveness. The grace of God taught them to obey him fully. Look at chapter 39, verse 42 and 43. The Israelites had done all of the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Remember, that's the repetitive line. Just as the Lord had commanded. Just as the Lord had commanded. 25 times in five chapters. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. And so Moses blessed them. By my count, more than 25 times, Israel's reaction was to do just what the Lord had commanded. I've told you before, you've heard me say this, that obedience is God's love language. It is his love language. And let me clarify that. It is not how we receive his love. Okay? You will never, ever, ever get God to love you any more than he does right now. His love for you on your worst day is as full and as complete and as overwhelming and consuming as it is on your best day. His love is perfect all the time, all the time, not just when you're really, really good. And the reaction to such overwhelming, gracious love of God is to obey Him. It's His love language because it's how we express our love to Him. It's how He receives our love. He loves us constantly and relentlessly consistently. And when we are aware of that, we respond in obedience. As Eugene Peterson has coined the term, I wish it was mine, a long obedience in the same direction, a response to his love. And finally, the grace of God taught Israel about the coming Christ. And you look at that and you say, what? Where is that? Show me that in the text. I don't see it. Where's Jesus in Exodus? Where's Jesus in Genesis? Where's, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? He's everywhere. Can I just say? This has been a convicting point for me, something that I've been pondering. I want to say this about you guys. I love, something I love about this church is your appetite and your hunger and your love for the word of God. I am so proud of you in that. And when I'm away and I get to brag about you guys, people always ask me, tell me about your church. And I get to say, they love the word of God. And I know if we didn't teach the word of God, you'd all have a problem. And I'm pleased with that. You should have a problem. There is a there is a risk here. And I think Jesus warns us about this in John chapter five, verse thirty nine. He says this, he's saying, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that by them you have eternal life. And then he goes on to say something. He says, but they speak of me. Let me ask you this question. What scriptures was Jesus referring to? The Old Testament. The New Testament had yet to be written. He said, you search the scriptures intently. He's saying, you're looking at the law. You're looking at the cup. You're looking at all these things, how to obey, how to perform, how to earn my love, all these kinds of things. He's saying, but they all speak of me. They point to me. They prepare you for me. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. They point to to me, Jesus is the center of this whole book. Everything that comes before him points to him. Everything that comes after it points to him. The full testament of God, the old and the new, points to Jesus Christ. He is the center of the whole thing. And Exodus, in lots of different ways, is a fancy theological term, what we call pedagogical. It's instructional. It's tutorial. It teaches. It prepares. It points to... It points to, Exodus points to a greater Exodus. Not just a bondage of slavery, but a bondage to sin. There is a greater Exodus. We learn about Moses, a good leader, but there is a greater Moses. Moses was a friend of God. Jesus is the son of God. It speaks of a greater covenant. A covenant that Jeremiah speaks of where he says, I will take their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we place our faith in Christ and He empowers us to do what we could not do before. There is a greater sacrifice. The Levitical system was beautiful, it was wonderful. Israel loved it. They could approach a holy God. A sinful people could come to a holy God in the tabernacle, offer sacrifices and receive some sense of forgiveness. And yet the forgiveness was incomplete because God does not forgive just forensically, but all forgiveness is based upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ came because sins in the beforehand were left undealt with in a just way. But all of the sin and all of humanity that had been overlooked previously was poured into Christ in one moment. And all of sin for all time was crucified in Him. There was a better sacrifice coming. There was a better priest coming. The priests served diligently. But remember, they were flawed people. They had to, they had to give an offering in the brazen altar. Then they had to wash. They went in with particular garments they went in there with a safety cord on their ankle, remember? Just in case. I love what A.W. Tozer says about Jesus, who is in heaven advocating for us right now. He says that there is a glorified man at the right hand of the Father in heaven, faithfully representing us there. We are left here but for a season among men. Let us faithfully represent him here. There's a better priest, and there's a better tabernacle. The tabernacle that we have here just, just points to, just looks forward to. In John 1.14, we're told this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word is literally tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. And one day we will dwell with him completely and fully because of God's gracious forgiveness in our lives. Because he gave his son, Jesus. All of these things everything in Exodus points to Jesus who is the center of it all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, your whole and complete word. Not because in it we have eternal life, not in not because in performance we have eternal life, but because it all points to you Jesus in whom we have eternal life and so we say thank you Jesus come soon. Amen.